Good morning. Glad you're with us this uh, Palm Sunday. And again, if you're a guest with us, uh, thanks for being here and watching online as well and down at F3. Glad you're joining us down there as well. Have you ever been, uh, have you ever been disappointed by something that uh, you, you thought was one way and ended up not being that, that way? Um, something that masqueraded as one thing and you realized it wasn't what you expected it to be, you know, like reaching into a bowl of fruit and grabbing an apple and finding it's plastic. Have you ever done that? Smelling uh, a flower and realizing it's, it's just silk. Or um, hearing about a great restaurant that's opening up and you go to it and find out it's just a fast food joint. Or spending good money to go to a movie that a friend highly recommended and and to be honest, you've seen better film on teeth. <laughs> Seeing something, going somewhere, and yet being disappointed for what it really isn't. Well, Jesus and his disciples experienced that very same thing in Mark chapter 11 on that Palm Sunday. Uh, take your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 11. Uh, final week of Christ's life began with such hope in this... Um, this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. For three years, Jesus had been um, moving about the, the, the Judea area, the Galilee area. In um, the first chapter of Mark, one of the demons that he casts out says, I, I know who you are, you're, the, you're the, the Holy One of God. And he told him, be quiet, be quiet. Or later in Mark chapter 1, it says that he healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons. And the text says he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. It was maybe as if Jesus didn't want that kind of uh, publicity. But oftentimes he would say, my time has not yet come. Mark chapter 3 is another example. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Uh, but this day, um, it was totally different. Verse 1 of Mark 11, as they approached the Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has yet ever sat on tight and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say to them that the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And so verse 4, they went away, and they found that colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And someone of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And so they gave them permission and they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It, 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 the hour had come. For two and a half, three years, it was, hush, be quiet. My time has not yet come. But now with Jerusalem 
filled with the throngs of people who'd come for the Passover. There's uh, various uh, debate over the centuries of how big Jerusalem, the city, was at that time of, of Jesus. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, uh, suggests that the city of Jerusalem might have been 600,000 people, and most people believe that was an overinflated number. Some projected, thought that Jerusalem was only maybe 20,000 people, and that's way too low. Some of the consensus is, well, maybe it's around 100,000 people. It was a big city. But on this feast day, this feast week, um, hundreds of thousands of people came to Jerusalem from all over the empire to fulfill their obligation to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so you get this sense of a mass of humanity. And they all didn't fit in Jerusalem. They were camping out in the hills around Jerusalem. And Jesus' reputation had obviously preceded him. For two and a half, three years, he'd healed the sick, he'd raised the dead, he spoke and taught like no one else had spoken and taught. And now he's riding a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. It's what Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 said would happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, folks, the stage was set. The hour had come. This was it. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. He's going to sit on the throne of our father David. This is the time. And they waved those palm branches, and there was this sheer excitement, exhilaration among the crowd. The hour had come. No quieting the people now. No saying, hush, be still. This was the hour. And yet, look at the very next verse, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So, you know, wait a minute, that's rather anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, he's got the, the ready-made audience. Hundreds, thousands of people. Hosanna, Hosanna. Praises to the king. He's coming. And he goes in and looks around the temple and heads back to Bethany because it was late. Why did nothing happen? Well, let's keep reading. Mark's gospel, by the way, is a discipleship gospel. Mark wrote this gospel to the church, to the believing church at that time. And he's writing it specifically to believers, I think, in, in Rome, probably picking the brain of Peter. And he writes this epistle, or this uh, gospel account of Jesus as, um, as kind of a manual of what discipleship means. And so we keep reading, and we find that the very next day, it says in verse 12, when they had left Bethany again, he, came, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. But he said to it, verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. 
we jump down to um, verse 20 because on the next day as they were passing by that fig tree again, um, they saw that the fig tree was withered from the roots up. And verse 21 says, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered. This is, by the way, the last miracle that Jesus did that's recorded by Mark. And it's the only destructive miracle, I guess you could call it destructive, it's the only destructive miracle that Jesus ever performed that's recorded. What's the significance of it? Now, a fig tree wouldn't ordinarily, that was leafy, have some fruit on it. And so Jesus sees this leafy fig tree and obviously assumed that there might be fruit on it, and he goes over to check it out. Now, Mark reminds the readers that this was not the season for figs. It was either an early bloomer, or, or maybe there were the little green figs that were popping out, uh, the, pre, the pre-fruit stage. Uh, maybe there were some older figs left over from the, the, a few months before in the previous season. But he sees a leafy fig tree, had all the potential, it would seem, And he's hungry, so he goes over there, and there's nothing there. Nothing there at all. Um, And what does Jesus do? Verse 14, he cursed it. Let no one eat fruit from you again. Why would he do that? Was he just kind of so hungry? I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can become a bear in the morning if I don't have... Don't worry, I did have breakfast this morning. But, uh, you know, you can let things get away like that. Is that what happened with Jesus? He was just kind of out of sorts that morning? No, the key is looking again at verse 14, the last little phrase in verse 14 that says, and his disciples were listening. Jesus never missed an opportunity to teach his disciples. And Mark never missed an opportunity in his gospel, which is, a, a again, a... a a gospel account of discipleship to the believing church in Rome. And he wanted us to be aware that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples something because they were listening. They were seeing this whole thing unfold. Well, what did Jesus want to teach his disciples? Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as a a fig tree or or a, a vineyard. Um, as example, Hosea, Hosea chapter 4, or chapter 9. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers at the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor, and they devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. Israel, um, like fruit on on a fig tree. Uh, Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Just hang in there with Mark for a moment. But over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5 is, um, it was a passage we looked at a few years back when we were going through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is a parable of the vineyard. Kind of like a poem or, or a song that was sung. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, 
He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. You might have a note in your column that says it was nothing but stink fruit. If you remember us going through that in Isaiah a number of years ago, it was, it was rotten fruit. Verse 3 says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And thus he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, a cry of distress. The, the picture of the fruitless fig tree. The, the, the vineyard that God had so carefully attended to to expect good fruit to come from it. But when you bit into it, it was nothing but rotten, stink fruit, worthless. They had not produced the fruit of righteousness. And there were great consequences. Now, sandwiched in between, back in Mark chapter 11, this story of the cursing of the fig tree, and then coming back to it the next day when Peter says, oh look, the fig tree, it's withered, it's dead. Sandwiched in between those accounts is this well-known account of the cleansing of the temple. And Mark does that purposefully. He talks about the cursing of the fig tree. He comes back to it and talks about how dead it was. But in between is the story, the cleansing of the Jewish temple. So go back to Mark chapter 12, look at verse 15. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple to overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? And the, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this. They began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then again, when evening came, they would go out of the city. In Bible times, um, there were three different currencies that would be floating around there in Jerusalem, especially here at the Passover where there were people that had come from around the Roman Empire for the Passover celebration. There was Roman coinage, there was Greek coinage, and there was a local Jewish currency that would be used. Three different types of, of coins, might have been others, uh, but those were the predominant ones. 
And when the worshipers would come to Jerusalem, like here at the Passover, uh, it would get a little complicated because as Jewish worshipers, they would have to go to the temple and pay their annual temple tax. Oh yeah, there was a, there was a temple tax. And it'd be collected and you'd reach into your pocket and pull out your wallet and there'd be Roman coins. And you had to pay though in Hebrew, in, in the Jewish coinage. So you'd have to go to the table where the money changers were and you have to change your Roman or maybe you had Greek coins or some other coinage and you'd have to trade it and change it for the Hebrew coinage. The problem was, and this was just a little game that was played by the religious leaders of the day, you never got a fair price for your exchange. I mean, you give them a buck and you get maybe 90 cents in return. They'd have the little corruption game going on. But it didn't stop there because then you had to um, go buy the sacrificial animals, the doves, the birds, or the, 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 the lambs. Um, you, the, the Temple Mount, if you've ever been to, to Jerusalem, you've got the Temple Mount and then you've got the Kidron Valley and then over to the Mount of Olives. And over there near the Mount of Olives where it was kind of the marketplace. It was set up for these festival times where the animals were there and you could go purchase. Now, once in a while, I suppose people brought their own, but if you traveled from a long distance, um, you wouldn't, and you'd have to go over to the marketplace, and you would have to buy the sacrificial lamb. You'd have to go buy the animal that would be sacrificed on Passover. Once again, it was a, a bit of a corruption thing. The, the, the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin kind of ran that, and so you would once again have to change your money and, and get the right coinage and, and buy the animals, and it was always overpriced. Now, if you did bring your own, they'd catch you there too, because you see, it had to be inspected, it had to be kosher, it had to be, it had to be spotless, you know, the, the, the right kind of sacrifice. And you can see this unfold, can't you? Um, oh, you, you brought your own lamb? Um, very good of you, but <laughs> you see this, the spot, you, you see this here, you see that it kind of walks a little bit with a limp? It won't do. God requires a perfect sacrifice. So, uh, but we, we have our own. So we'll, we can take yours and give us a little extra money and, and we'll get you set up for the Passover celebration. Now at the time of Jesus, it even got a little bit more dicey because Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. And Caiaphas saw what was going on over here by the uh, Mount of Olives in the marketplace over there. He said, why should those guys have all the, get all the money? So sometime around the time of, of Christ, Caiaphas uh, brought the marketplace, his own marketplace, right there to the Jewish Temple Mount, what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And so they set up their own shop, their own marketplace with their own animals and and uh, money changers, and all that was being done right there on the Temple Mount. And you can imagine, well, I, I choice, to, and maybe he offered a, you know, a little bargain. So instead of going over there to across the Kidron Valley, I can get it right there. It's a one-stop shop and, and sacrifice right there, right on the Temple Mount. And so, again, you think of thousands of people milling about there on the Temple Mount. Jesus, it is said, 
verse 16, he did not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. For that day, for that few hours, he, he stopped it. In fact, he saw in verse 15 the money changers and he drove them out and he overturned their tables. And, and then he said in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Here was all the, the Jewish people doing all their exchange and, and, and buying in the marketplace on the, on the court of the Gentiles. Well, no Gentile would even make it there. And he drives them all out. He stops people carrying their merchandise through the temple. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages, one in Isaiah and one in, one in Jeremiah. You have made my father's temple not a place of prayer for all the nations, but a den of, of thieves, of robbers. People getting rich off the backs of poor Jewish people who had traveled, some of them hundreds of miles, to be there. Um, ripping them off in the money changer tables. A den of thieves. I think even more than that was meant. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 through 11 is a passage that Jesus refers to. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9, I've got to get back here. Where is that passage? Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 through 11 says, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? And then you come and you stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and you say, We're safe, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? God says, Behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. Have you made my house into... You come, you who have committed murder, you have committed all sorts of wicked atrocities, and you come to my temple, and that's what they were doing. That's what Jeremiah is referring to. You've done something illegal. You've done something wicked. But you could go and you could hide in the temple and have sanctuary. You would be safe there. You could hang on to the horns of the altar and, and cry out for mercy and, and you would receive it. And God is saying in Jeremiah, I, I know your game. I know what's going on here. You're committing all these evil things and you're rushing to my temple and you're claiming sanctuary. I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm delivered, I'm delivered. But there's no change of heart. It's a little game you're playing. And when the, the heat's off, you slip out the back door and you go continue doing the things that you've always done. I know what you're doing, says God. Here were people who were finding cover through their religious, seemingly religiosity, running to the temple, but no change of heart. And Jesus, here in this passage, quotes from Jeremiah, says, you, you've made the temple into a den of thieves. You, you're hiding behind your outward forms. 
Oh, look around. Look at all the busyness, the religion going on, the piety. People buying their sacrifices or going through all the, all the um, work of, uh, of the Passover celebration. Outwardly, lots of activity, a lot of busyness, all for cultic ritual. But Jesus said, it's, it's emptiness. That's what he said earlier in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. The people, this people honor me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They were hypocrites, that's all. Outward forms to, that meant nothing to them. They could do all the religious activities and then leave and, and be no different. It was people who had a lot of a lot of leaves on them, a lot of outward a show, a lot of outward appearance of, of maybe there was something of real fruit there. But they lacked the real fruit of righteousness. And judgment was going to come. Just like in Isaiah. The judgment came to that generation when the Babylonians came and took them off into captivity. And Jesus is now saying, judgment is going to come again. The fig tree that is Israel was cursed by its king. God's patience had run out. If we go back to that Isaiah passage, verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 5 said this, And what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? I mean, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? The nation of Israel, of all the nations on the face of the earth, God chose this group of slaves out of Egypt. Of all the nations, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, I didn't choose you because you were the, the greatest of all the nations. I chose you because you were the least, because... Because I set my affections on you. I love you. Deuteronomy, I think it is 32, God says um, that the nations are allotted, all the other nations are allotted to all the other gods, but, but my allotment, my nation is, is Israel. That is my people. God had made a covenant with Abraham years before that even, before Moses. Abraham, go forth from your country. Go forth from your people of the land of Ur, the Chaldees, to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'll bless you. And those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. In fact, through you, all the other nations of the world will be blessed. A chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. He set his affections on Israel. He chose them out of the, the slave market of, of Egyptian cruelty. They were his people. He gave them the law. What other nation had the law of God, the reflection of the character of, of Jehovah God, the only God? It was Israel that was well-blessed. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it then produce worthless ones? Every spiritual advantage had been given to the chosen people of Israel. 
but they spurned it. In fact, just five days after some of these people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were saying, crucify him, crucify him, because we have no king but Caesar. Temporal judgment did fall. Just 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, the Roman legions march in and besiege Jerusalem and sack it and burn it and destroy the temple. Josephus again wrote that there was upwards maybe to a million Jewish people in that whole area that were slaughtered. Um, it would be 1,900 years later before the Jews came back into that land, controlled that land again. Spiritual fruitlessness. Leafy fig tree, but no fruit. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And he cursed that generation. And so what's the solution to the tragedy of spiritual fruitlessness? How, how does one avoid the consequence of God's disciplining hand against fruitlessness? There's one final scene we need to read. Look again, starting at verse 20. They passed by, they saw the withered fruit tree uh, the, from the roots up. Look, Rabbi, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, Have faith. In God. What a strange response. What is Jesus telling this band of disciples? What is Mark trying to tell the disciples of the early church in Rome? What is God wanting to tell us today? Jesus' response was, have faith in God. And I think he's simply saying that the answer to fruitlessness, to spiritual barrenness, is a dependency, is a trust, is faith, living by faith in our God. Mark is teaching us that the type of life that bears fruit is a life that is lived dependently upon God. God God wants us to love him. He wants us to obey him. But first and foremost, he wants us to trust him. Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart, but commit your way to the Lord and trust also in him, and he will do it. Or Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Or Isaiah 26, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever, for in God, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Or the prophet Jeremiah, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Or Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, 
and do not lean on your own understanding. What does God want from his children? Just, just trust me. Just, just crawl up in my lap and, and put your arms around me and, and trust me. I'm your father. I'm your refuge. I promise to take care of you. I will. Just trust me. I know there's a way that seems right unto your own eyes, and, and, but the way always ends up in destruction. The wages of sin is always death. You never find in sin and, and self-centeredness what you go there to find. So trust me. I love you. I care for you. Just, just believe me. God wants his children to trust him. Which is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, is it not? I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says this in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and how do we receive him? By faith. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, he requires nothing of us but to believe him, the free gift of eternal life. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, so what, what kind of a fig tree are we? Lots of leaves. We attend church regularly. We give our tithes and our offerings. We volunteer in, in the nursery or youth ministry or some other opportunity that the church presents itself. We're involved in a, in a small group type of ministry. We, we have a lot of activities. But when push comes to shove, when, when, when the fruit inspector comes, what kind of fruit is there? When our children disappoint us, do we respond impatiently with anger? When our roommate crosses us, do we lash out with hurtful words? When the joke is told at the water cooler at work, the off-colored one, do we kind of laugh along right with everybody else? When someone is being made fun at at school, do we join in the pain of someone else? A lot of leaves, but no fruit of righteousness. Why? Because we're not living by faith. We're talking to born-again believers who are going to heaven. All right? Now, you could be here today and very religious and doing all sorts of good things and, and thinking that that's going to get you to heaven. And in that respect, you could have a lot of leafiness in terms of religious activity, but not have the real 
personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that, that only comes by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. A home in heaven awaits anyone. A relationship with God for all of eternity is there for simply receiving by faith. Have faith in God. But, but Jesus is, is talking to his disciples. They were listening. He wanted them to understand something. Mark is writing to believers in Rome. He wants them to understand something about discipleship as God would have us today as well. And could we be like Israel of old, the chosen people of God, where God has given us every opportunity to be fruitful? And yet the internal reality is, is a barrenness. Remember, God has told us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, man, we are fabulously blessed. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, His divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. The moment we trust Christ as our personal Savior, He dwells within us. His very presence is at home in us. Paul says we become the temple of the Holy Spirit because He dwells within us. The Holy Spirit, who then, according to Galatians 5, produces His fruit in us, love and joy and peace and patience and faithfulness and goodness and kindness and gentleness and all the, the wonderful fruit of righteousness. God has given all of this to us. That when we live by faith in Him and we walk humbly before our God and we appropriate that power that is within us, that fruit is born in our life. It's not something we even have to work at. It's something that just shows up because God is doing His work. He's transforming us from the inside out because we're walking by faith and not by sight. Look, Jesus, the, the fig tree that you curse, it's, it's dead. Have faith in God. The church of Jesus Christ is like God's second vineyard. He desires that we produce that, that fruit of righteousness. And, and he will bring about that fruit in our life when we walk by faith and not by sight. And he has creative ways to discipline us when that fruit doesn't show up. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You may be here today and you're heaven bound. And you know it because there was a point in time in your life where you put your faith in Jesus as your only hope to get to heaven. You trusted him for your eternity. But as so oftentimes happens, we can 
get off that path. We can get occupied with so many things. We still maintain enough activity to assuage maybe our guilt. We can look very leafy. But the fruit of righteousness, it just doesn't seem to be showing up. God our Father will certainly deal with us, his children. He'll do his work of grace, and sometimes it can be very painful. Because he wants his children to be full of figs. He wants his children to be full of the fruit of righteousness. That's why we're here. That's why we're still on this earth and not in heaven yet. Because he wants to use us to proclaim the excellencies of, of who he is to this world. He wants our light to so shine before men that they'll see the reality of the, the, the living Savior within us. And those people that see it, they'll come to glorify God too. We are to be his ambassadors in this world. And what Israel failed to do, the church of Jesus Christ has been raised up to do. Jesus Christ, he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey that morning to the cries of the people, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the king. And we have that opportunity, folks, every day as well to proclaim to this world, Hosanna. I, I know you've watched the news. I, I realize you're, you're, you're being occupied with the horrible stuff going on in this world, but we've got good news. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. There's a king who's come. He's paid for our sins. He's ridden victoriously into the face of, of death in the grave. He's been raised from the dead. And he wants to present his life to this world. And he wants to use us in the process. Let's show the fruit of righteousness. How do we do that? By trying harder to live the Christian life? No! By trusting more. Have faith in God. And appropriate all that he's already given us. And move out into this world with the truth claims of Christ. And that's when a difference is made. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity on this Palm Sunday to be reminded again of a glorious Savior who presented himself as the King. And yet, a King who had a mission to die and pay for our sins. I thank you that next week we can celebrate the wonderful truth that, Lord Jesus, you didn't stay dead. We're talking to you right now. You rose again on the third day to empower us to take that message into this world. To call others to have faith in God as we walk by faith and experience the, the fruitfulness of righteousness that you produce in us. Father, may we carry out our mission, even this week, I pray, in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.